again, modernist revival listeners. This episode will be the first in a four-part series in which I am going to be reading and discussing A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. A Room of One's Own is a collection of short essays that were originally delivered as a series of lectures read to two prominent women's universities in England in the fall of 1928. As such, these essays were written and designed to be read aloud and delivered as lectures, which is one of my favorite things to bring into this podcast. In the last episode, you heard me read What is an Author by Michel Foucault, which is written in the same style as a lecture. Papers in their original form were much too long to be read in full to the women's colleges, and so Wolf later expanded them into A Room of One's Own, which was published in 1929 by Hogarth Press, the printing house Wolf owned and operated alongside her husband, Leonard Wolf. In the opening two chapters, which I will read in this episode, Wolf hypothesizes over the conditions necessary for a woman or female-born person to be able to produce works of creative genius. In this way, she intends to question why there are not a comparable number of women considered to be creative geniuses in comparison to males of the species. Again, Wolf was writing in 1928, a time when in order for women to attend university, she needed to be born into a very wealthy family. And even then, attending an institution of higher education was seen as a goalpost on a road that would eventually lead to marriage and the raising of children, and not to the development of a career as such. This collection of essays is widely regarded as a foundational text for women's literature and for gender studies more broadly conceived. In it, we get Wolfe's definition of the androgynous mind, which she conceives of as a genderless space of creation in which the artist's mind functions not as a male or a female, but rather as a wholly objective mirror or lens which may reflect or depict reality for its audience of readers, listeners, or viewers. In this and many other ways, this book was and continues to be groundbreaking. That being said, I think it is also important to mention that A Room of One's Own is not without a set of problematic elements, which it is equally important to discuss within the context of the text as a whole and its reception and subsequent academic and theoretical applications. To start, Wolf was in many ways a woman of extreme privilege. Her father, Sir Leslie Stephen, was a prominent editor and book publisher and passed down to his youngest daughter, Virginia, not only great acclaim and education, but also a printing press, which she later ran with her husband, Leonard, and which the two used to their great benefit to help form a collection of writers 
philosophers, and public intellectuals known as the Bloomsbury Group, and who many consider to have been the founding members of the literary modernist movement. Throughout her life, and particularly in periods of productive creative output, Wolfe was prone to feelings of panic and anxiety, which doctors at the time have labeled female hysteria, and which historians and biographers today consider to have been bipolar disorder or major depressive disorder. During these periods of intense mania, Wolfe was treated with a combination of medication and bed rest, a treatment known at the time as the rest cure. Wolfe's considerable social privilege, coupled with the fairly isolated and reclusive way she was encouraged to live her life as a result of her treatment for mental illness, provide the basis for her presentation of the standards a woman must be allowed to live by if she is to produce works of creative genius. Namely, that she must have a space of her own, guaranteed income, and meals provided for her in order for her mind to function as it should in order to excel in creative pursuits. Wolfe herself did not have to worry about any of these basic needs and comforts, having all of her needs met by her husband and other caregivers. In many ways, the first two essays in this collection work as both an acknowledgement of her own privilege and a reflection on the harsh reality that were more women as wealthy and privileged as she, the world might know more women of creative genius. So it becomes a kind of commentary on injustice and inequality, but Wolf doesn't really place enough pressure on inequality to make this essay meaningful in a discussion of various forms of social inequality. She, she tends rather to focus mostly on upper middle class white women who would have had access to the kinds of education she's discussing in the book. Keeping in mind, this isn't necessarily a social problem with the essay, but more a problem of audience. She was delivering these lectures to young, well-to-do white women who were seeking an education. So there's a historical constraint that's also a social constraint in these essays that I just want us to be aware of. Wolf's limited perspective is not without gaps in logic and history, which I will go into more detail about in the next episode, and which I do a lot to really place pressure on and unpack in the dissertation that I'm currently working on, which Wolf is a key focus of. For now, I'll just do as I normally do on this podcast, which is stick to Wolf's own words in a reading of the text. So here are the first two chapters of A Room of One's Own, in which Wolf offers up an explanation for the title of the collection. That is, in order for a woman to write fiction with any manner of success, she must first have money and a living space of her own. 
A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. Chapter One. But, you may say, we asked you to speak about women and fiction. What has that got to do with A Room of One's Own? I will try to explain. When you asked me to speak about women and fiction, I sat down on the banks of a river and began to wonder what the words meant. They might mean simply a few remarks about Fanny Burney, a few more about Jane Austen, a tribute to the Brontes and a sketch of Haworth Parsonage under snow, some witticisms, if possible, about Miss Mitford, a respectful allusion to George Eliot, a reference to Mrs. Gaskell, and one would have done. But at second sight, the words seem not so simple. The title women and fiction might mean, and you may have meant it to mean, women and what they are like. Or it might mean women and the fiction that they write. Or it might mean women and the fiction that is written about them. Or it might mean that somehow all three are inextricably mixed together and you want me to consider them in that light. But when I began to consider the subject in this last way, which seemed the most interesting, I soon saw that it had one fatal drawback. I should never be able to come to a conclusion. I should never be able to fulfill what it is I understand the first duty of a lecturer, to hand you after an hour's discourse a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. All I could do was to offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction, and that as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. I have shirked the duty of coming to a conclusion upon these two questions. Women and fiction remain, so far as I'm concerned, unsolved problems. But in order to make some amends, I am going to do what I can to show you how I arrived at this opinion about the room and the money. I am going to develop in your presence as fully and freely as I can the train of thought which led me to think this. Perhaps if I lay bare the ideas, the prejudices that lie behind this statement, you will find that they have some bearing upon women and some upon fiction. At any rate, when a subject is highly controversial and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold. One can only give one's audience the chance of drawing their own conclusions as they observe the limitations, the prejudices, the, the idiosyncrasies of the speaker. Fiction here is likely to contain more truth than fact. Therefore, I propose making use of all the liberties and licenses of a novelist to tell you the story of the two days that preceded my coming here, how 
bowed down by the weight of the subject which you have laid upon my shoulders, I pondered it and made it work in and out of my daily life. I need not say what I am about to describe has no existence. Oxbridge is an invention. So is Fernum. I is only a convenient term for somebody who has no real being. Lies will flow from my lips, but there may be perhaps some truth mixed up within them. It is for you to seek out this truth and to decide whether any part of it is worth keeping. If not, you will of course throw the whole of it into the waste paper basket and forget all about it. Here then was I. Call me Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Carmichael, or by any name you please, it is not a matter of importance. Sitting on the banks of a river a week or two ago in fine October weather, lost in thought. That collar I have spoken of, women and fiction, the need of coming to some conclusion on a subject that raises all sorts of prejudices and passions, bowed my head to the ground. To the right and left, bushes of some sort, golden and crimson, glowed with the color. Even it seemed burnt with the heat of fire. On the further bank, the willows wept in perpetual lamentation, their hair about their shoulders. The river reflected whatever it chose of the sky and bridge and burning tree. And when the undergraduate had oared his boat through the reflections, they closed again completely, as if he had never been. There one might have sat, the clock round, lost in thought. Thought, to call it by a prouder name than it deserved, had let its line down into the stream. It swayed, minute after minute, hither and thither among the reflections and the weeds, letting the water lift it and sink it until, you know the little tug, the sudden conglomeration of an idea at the end of one's line, and then the cautious hauling of it in and the careful laying of it out. Alas, laid on the grass, how small, how insignificant this thought of mine looked. The sort of fish that a good fisherman puts back into the water so that it may grow fatter and be one day worth cooking and eating. I will not trouble you with that thought now, though if you look carefully, you may find it for yourselves in the course of what I am going to say. But however small it was, it had nevertheless the mysterious property of its kind. Put back into the mind, it became at once very exciting and important. And as it darted and sank and flashed hither and thither, set up such a wash and tumult of ideas that it was impossible to sit still. It was thus that I found myself walking with extreme rapidity across a grass plot. Instantly a man's figure rose to intercept me. Nor did I at first understand that the gesticulations of a curious-looking object in a cutaway coat and evening shirt were aimed at me. His face expressed horror and indignation. Instinct rather than reason came to my help. He was a beetle. I was a woman. This was the turf. There was the path. Only the fellows and scholars, the men, 
are allowed here. The gravel is the place for me, a woman. Such thoughts were the work of a moment. As I regained the path, the arms of the beetle sank, his face assumed its usual repose, and though turf is better for walking than gravel, no very great harm was done. The only charge I could bring against the fellows and scholars of whatever the college might happen to be was that in protection of their turf, which has been rolled for 300 years in succession, they had sent my little fish into hiding. What idea it had been that had sent me so audaciously trespassing, I could not now remember. The spirit of peace descended like a cloud from heaven. For if the spirit of peace dwells anywhere, it is in the courts and quadrangles of Oxbridge on a fine October morning. Strolling through those colleges past those ancient halls, the roughness of the present seemed smoothed away. The body seemed contained in a miraculous glass cabinet through which no sound could penetrate, and the mind freed from any contact with facts, unless one trespassed on the turf again, was at liberty to settle down upon whatever meditation was in harmony with the moment. As chance would have it, some stray memory of some old essay about revisiting Oxbridge in the long vacation brought Charles Lamb to mind. St. Charles, said Thackeray, putting a letter of Lamb's to his forehead, indeed, among all the dead... I give you my thoughts as they came to me. Lamb is one of the most congenial, one to whom one would have liked to say, tell me how you wrote your essays. For his essays are superior even to Max Beerbohm's, who I thought with all their perfect perfection because of that wild flash of imagination, that lightning crack of genius in the middle of them, which leaves them flawed and imperfect, but starred with poetry. Lamb then came to Oxbridge perhaps a hundred years ago. Certainly, he wrote an essay, the name escapes me, about the manuscript of one of Milton's poems, which he saw here. It was Lysidius, perhaps, and Lamb wrote how it shocked him to think it possible that any word in Lysidius could have been different from what it is. To think of Milton changing the words in that poem seemed to him a sort of sacrilege. This led me to remember what I could of Lysidius and amuse myself with guessing which word it could have been that Milton had altered and why. It then occurred to me that the very manuscript itself which Lamb had looked at was only a few hundred yards away so that one could follow Lamb's footsteps across the quadrangle to that famous library where the treasure is kept. Moreover, I recollected as I put this plan into execution, it is in this famous library that the manuscript of Thackeray's Esmond is also preserved. The critics often say that Esmond is Thackeray's most perfect novel, but the affection of the style with its imitation of the 18th century hampers one so far as I remember, unless indeed the 18th century style was natural to Thackeray a fact that one might prove by looking at the manuscript and seeing whether the alterations were for the benefit of the style or of the sense. But then one would have to decide what is style and what is meaning, a question which, but here I was actually at the door which leads into the library itself, 
I must have opened it, for instantly there issued, like a guardian angel, barring the way, a flutter of black gown instead of white wings. A deprecating, silvery, kindly gentleman who regretted in a low voice as he waved me back that ladies are only admitted to the library if accompanied by a fellow of the college or furnished with a letter of introduction. That a famous library has been cursed by a woman is a matter of complete indifference to a famous library. Venerable and calm with all its treasures safe locked within its breast, it sleeps complacently and will, so far as I'm concerned, so sleep forever. Never will I wake the, those echoes. Never, never will I ask for that hospitality again. I vowed as I descended the steps in anger. Still an hour remained before luncheon, and what was one to do? Stroll on the meadows? Sit by the river? Certainly it was a lovely autumn morning. The leaves were fluttering red to the ground. There was no great hardship in doing either. But the sound of music reached my ear. Some service or celebration was going forward. The organ complained magnificently as I passed the chapel door. Even the sorrow of Christianity sounded in that serene air more like the recollection of sorrow than sorrow itself. Even the groanings of the ancient organ seemed lapped in peace. I had no wish to enter had I the right, and this time the verger might have stopped me, demanding perhaps my baptismal certificate or a letter of introduction from the dean. But the outside of these magnificent buildings is often as beautiful as the inside. Moreover, it was amusing enough to watch the congregation assembling, coming in and going out again, busying themselves at the door of the chapel like bees at the mouth of a hive. Many were in cap and gown. Some had tufts of fur on their shoulders. Others were wheeled in bath chairs. Others, though not past middle age, seemed creased and crushed into shapes so singular that one was reminded of those giant crabs and crayfish who heave with difficulty across the sand of an aquarium. As I leant against the wall, the university indeed seemed a sanctuary in which are preserved rare types which would soon be obsolete if left to fight for existence on the pavement of the Strand. Old stories of old deans and old dons came back to mind, but before I had summoned up the courage to whistle, it used to be said that at the sound of a whistle, old professors instantly broke into a gallop. The venerable congregation had gone inside. The outside of the chapel remained. As you know, its high domes and pinnacles can be seen like a sailing ship, always voyaging, never arriving, lit up at night and visible for miles, far away across the hills. Once, presumably, this quadrangle with its smooth lawns, its massive buildings, and the chapel itself was marsh too, where the grasses waved and the swine rootled, teams of horses and oxen, I thought, must have hauled the stone in wagons from far countries, and then, with infinite labor, the gray blocks in whose shade I was now standing, were poised in order, one on top of another, and then the painters brought their glass for the windows, and the masons were busy for centuries, up on that roof with putty and cement, spade and trowel. 
Every Saturday, somebody must have poured gold and silver out of a leathern purse into their ancient fist, for they had their beer and skittles presumably of an evening. An unending stream of gold and silver, I thought, must have flowed into this court perpetually to keep the stones coming and the masons working, to level, to ditch, to dig, and to drain. But it was then the age of faith, and money was poured liberally to set those stones on a deep foundation. And when the stones were raised, still more money was poured in from the coffers of kings and queens and great nobles to ensure that hymns should be sung here and scholars taught. Lands were granted, tithes were paid, and when the age of faith was over and the age of reason had come, still the same flow of gold and silver went on. Fellowships were founded, lectureships endowed, only the gold and silver flowed now, not from the coffers of the king, but from the chests of the merchants and manufacturers, from the purses of men who had made, say, a fortune from industry and returned in their wills a bounteous share of it to endow more chairs, more lectureships, more fellowships in the university where they had learnt their craft. Hence the libraries and laboratories the observatories, the splendid equipment of costly and delicate instruments which now stands on glass shelves where centuries ago the grasses waved and the swine rootled. Certainly, as I strolled round the court, the foundation of gold and silver seemed deep enough. The pavement laid solidly over the wild grasses. Men with trays on their heads went busily from staircase to staircase. Gaudy blossoms flowered in window boxes. The strains of the gramophone blared out from the rooms within. It was impossible not to reflect. The reflection, whatever it may have been, was cut short. The clock struck. It was time to find one's way to luncheon. It is a curious fact that novelists have a way of making us believe that luncheon parties are invariably memorable for something very witty that was said or for something very wise that was done. But they seldom spare a word for what was eaten. It is part of the novelist's convention not to mention soup and salmon and ducklings as if soup and salmon and ducklings were of no importance whatsoever, as if nobody ever smoked a cigar or drank a glass of wine. Here, however, I shall take the liberty to defy that convention and to tell you that the lunch on this occasion began with soles sunk in a deep dish over which the college cook had spread a counterpane of the whitest cream, save that it was branded here and there with brown spots like the spots on the flanks of a doe. After that came the partridges, but if this suggests a couple of bald brown birds on a plate, you are mistaken. The partridges, many and various, came with all their retinue of sauces and salads, the sharp and the sweet, each in its order, their potatoes thin as coins but not so hard, their sprouts foliated as rosebuds but more succulent, and no sooner had the roast and its retinue been done with than the silent serving man, the beetle himself, perhaps in a milder manifestation, set before us, us wreathed in napkins a confection which rose all sugar from the waves. To call it pudding and so relate it to rice and tapioca would be an insult. Meanwhile, the wine glasses had flushed yellow and flushed crimson, had been emptied, had been filled, and thus by degrees was lit, 
halfway down the spine, which is the seat of the soul, not that hard little electric light, which we call brilliance as it pops in and out upon our lips, but the more profound, subtle and subterranean glow, which is the rich yellow flame of rational intercourse. No need to hurry, no need to sparkle, no need to be anyone but oneself. We are all going to heaven and Van Dyke is of the company. In other words, how good life seemed, how sweet its rewards, how trivial this grudge or that grievance, how admirable friendship and the society of one's kind as lighting a good cigarette when sunk among the cushions in the window seat. If by good luck there had been an ashtray handy, if one had not knocked the ash out of the window in default, if things had been a little different from what they were, one would not have seen presumably a cat without a tail. The sight of that abrupt and truncated animal padding softly across the quadrangle, changed by some fluke of the subconscious intelligence, the emotional light for me. It was as if someone had let fall a shade. Perhaps the excellent hawk was relinquishing its hold. Certainly, as I watched the Manx cat pause in the middle of the lawn as if, too question, as if it too questioned the universe, something seemed lacking. Something seemed different. But what was lacking? What was different? I asked myself, listening to the talk, and to answer that question, I had to think myself out of the room, back into the past, before the war indeed, and to set before my eyes the model of another luncheon party held in rooms not very far distant from these, but different. Everything was different. Meanwhile, the talk went on among the guests, who were many and young, some of this sex, some of that. It went on swimmingly. It went on agreeably, freely, amusingly. And as it went on, I set it, I set it against the background of that other talk as I matched the two together. I had no doubt that one was the descendant, the legitimate heir of the other. Nothing was changed. Nothing was different save only, here I listened with all my ears, not entirely to what was being said, but to the murmur or current behind it. Yes, that was it. The change was there. Before the war at a luncheon party like this, people would have said precisely the same things, but they would have sounded different because in those days they were accompanied by a sort of humming noise, not articulate, but musical, exciting, which changed the value of words themselves. Could one see that humming noise to words? Perhaps with the help of the poets one could. A book lay beside me, and opening it, I turned casually enough to Tennyson. And here I found Tennyson singing. There has fallen a splendid tear from the passion flower at the gate. She is coming, my dove, my dear. She is coming, my life, my fate. The red rose cries, she is near, she is near. And the white rose weeps, she is late. The larkspur listens, I hear, I hear and the lily whispers, I wait. Was that what men hummed at luncheon parties before the war? And the women? My heart is like a singing bird whose nest is in a watered shoot. My heart is like an apple tree whose boughs are bent with thick-set fruit. 
My heart is like a rainbow shell that paddles in a halcyon sea. My heart is gladder than all these because my love is come to me. Was that what women hummed at luncheon parties before the war? There was something so ludicrous in thinking of people humming such things, even under their breath at luncheon parties before the war, that I burst out laughing and had to explain my laughter by pointing at the Manx cat, who did look a little absurd, poor beast, without a tail in the middle of the lawn. Was he really so born, or had he lost his tail in an accident? The tailless cat, though some are said to exist in the Isle of Man, is rarer than one thinks. It is a queer animal, quaint rather than beautiful. It is strange what a difference a tale makes. You know the sort of things one says as a luncheon party breaks up and people are finding their coats and hats. This one, thanks to the hospitality of the host, had lasted far into the afternoon. The beautiful October day was fading and the leaves were falling from the trees in the avenue as I walked through it. Gate after gate seemed to close with gentle finality behind me. Innumerable beetles were fitting innumerable keys into well-oiled locks. The treasure house was being made secure for another night. After the avenue, one comes out upon a road, I forget its name, which leads you if you take the right turning along to Fernham. But there was plenty of time. Dinner was not till half past seven. One could almost do without dinner after such a luncheon. It is strange how a scrap of poetry works in the mind and makes the legs move into time to it along the road. Those words, there had fallen a splendid tear from the passion flower at the gate. She is coming, my dove, my dear. Those words sang in my blood as I stepped quickly along towards Heatingly, and then switching off into the other measure I sang, where the waters are churned up by the weir, my heart is like a singing bird whose nest is in a watered shoot. My heart is like an apple tree. What poets, I cried aloud as one does in the dusk, what poets they were. In a sort of jealousy, I suppose, for our own age, silly and absurd though these comparisons are, I went on to wonder if honestly one could name two living poets now, as great as Tennyson and Christina Rossetti were then. Obviously it's impossible, I thought, looking into those foaming waters to compare them. The very reason why poetry excites one to such abandonment, such rapture, is that it celebrates some feeling that one used to have at luncheon parties, before the war, perhaps, so that one responds easily, familiarly, without troubling to check the feeling or to compare it with any that one has now. But the living poets express a feeling that is actually being made and torn out of us at the moment. One does not recognize it in the first place. Often, for some reason, one fears it. One watches it with keenness and compares it jealously and suspiciously with the old feeling that one knew. Hence the difficulty of modern poetry, and it is because of this difficulty that one cannot remember more than two consecutive lines of any good modern poet. For this reason, that my memory failed me, the argument flagged for want of material. But why, I continued, moving on towards Headingley, have we stopped humming under our breath at luncheon parties? 
Why has Alfred ceased to sing? She is coming, my dove, my dear. Why has Christina ceased to respond? My heart is gladder than all these because my love has come to me. Shall we lay the blame on the war? When the guns fired in August 1914, did the faces of men and women show so plain in each other's eyes that romance was killed? Certainly it was a shock to women in particular with their illusions about education and so on to see the faces of our rulers in the light of the shell fire. So ugly they looked, German, English, French, so stupid, but lay the blame where one will, one who, on whom one will, the illusion which inspired Tennyson and Christina Rossetti to sing so passionately about the coming of their loves is far rarer now than then. One has only to read, to look, to listen, to remember, but why say blame? Why, if it was an illusion, not praise the catastrophe, whatever it was, that destroyed illusion and put truth in its place? For truth... Those dots mark the spot where, in search of truth, I missed the turning up to Fernham. There's an ellipsis in the sentence. Yes, indeed, which was truth and which was illusion, I asked myself. What was the truth about these houses, for example, dim and festive now, with their red windows in the dusk, but raw and red and squalid with their sweets and their bootlaces at nine o'clock in the morning. And the willows and the river and the gardens that run down to the river, vague now with the mist stealing over them, but gold and red in the sunlight. Which was the truth? Which was the illusion about them? I spare you the twists and turns of my co cogitations, for no conclusions was found on the road to Headingley. And I ask you to suppose that I soon found out my mistake about the turning and retraced my steps to Fernham. As I have said already that it was an October day, I dare not forfeit your respect and imperil the fair name of fiction by changing the season and describing lilacs hanging over garden walls, crocuses, tulips, and other flowers of spring. Fiction must stick to facts and the truer the facts, the better the fiction. So we are told. Therefore, it was still autumn, and the leaves were still yellow and falling, if anything, a little faster than before, because it was now evening, 7.23 to be precise, and a breeze from the southwest, to be exact, had risen. But for all that, there was something odd at work. My heart is like a singing bird whose nest is in a watered shoot. My heart is like an apple tree whose boughs are bent with thick-set fruit. Perhaps the words of Christina Rossetti were partly responsible for the folly of the fancy. It was nothing, of course, but a fancy that the lilac was shaking its flowers over the garden walls and the brimstone butterflies were scudding hither and thither and the dust of the pollen was in the air. A wind blew, from what quarter I know not, but it lifted the half-grown leaves so that there was a flash of silver-gray in the air. It was the time between the lights when colors undergo their intensification and purples and golds burn in window panes like the beat of an excitable heart, when for some reason 
the beauty of the world revealed and yet soon to perish. Here I pushed into the garden, for unwisely the door was left open and no beetles seemed about. The beauty of the world, which is so soon to perish, has two edges, one of laughter, one of anguish, cutting the heart asunder. The gardens of Fernum lay before me in the spring twilight, wild and open, and in the long grass, sprinkled and carelessly flung, were daffodils and bluebells, not orderly, perhaps, at the best of times, and now wind-blown and waving as they tugged at their roots. The windows of the building curved like ship's windows among generous waves of red brick, changed from lemon to silver under the flight of the quick spring clouds. Somebody was in a hammock, somebody, but in this light they were phantoms only, half-guessed, half-seen, raced across the grass. Would no one stop her? And then on the terrace, as if popping out to breathe the air, to glance at the garden, came a bent figure, formidable yet humble, with her great forehead and her shabby dress. Could it be the famous scholar herself? All was dim, yet intense, too, as if the scarf which the dusk had flung over the garden were torn asunder by star or sword, the flash of some terrible reality leaping as its way is out of the heart of the spring for youth. Here was my soup. Dinner was being served in the great dining hall. Far from being spring, it was in fact an evening in October. Everybody was assembled in the big dining room. Dinner was ready. Here was the soup. It was a plain gravy soup. There was nothing to stir the fancy in that. One could have seen through the transparent liquid any pattern that there might have been on the plate itself. But there was no pattern. The plate was plain. Next came beef with its attendant greens and potatoes, a homely trinity, suggesting the rumps of cattle in a muddy market, and sprouts curled and yellows at the edge, and bargaining and cheapening, and women with string bags on Monday morning. There was no reason to complain of human nature's daily food, seeing that the supply was sufficient and coal miners, doubtless, were sitting down to less. Prunes and custard followed, and if anyone complains that prunes, even when mitigated by custard, are an uncharitable vegetable, fruit they are not. Stringy as a miner's heart and exuding a fluid such as might run in misers' veins who have denied themselves wine and warmth for 80 years and yet not given to the poor, he should reflect that there are people whose charity embraces even the prune. Biscuits and cheese came next, and here the water jug was liberally passed round, for it is the nature of biscuits to be dry, and these were biscuits to the core. That was all. The meal was over. Everybody scraped their chairs back. The swing doors swung violently to and fro. Soon the hall was emptied of every sign of food and made ready, no doubt, for breakfast next morning. Down corridors and up staircases, the youth of England went banging and singing, and it was for a guest, a stranger. For I had no more right here in Fernham than in Trinity or Somerville or Girton or Newnham or Christchurch. To say the dinner was not good, or to say 
We were now, Mary Seaton and I, in her sitting room. Could we not have dined up here alone? For if I had said anything of the kind, I should have been prying and searching into the secret economies of a house which to the stranger wears so fine a front of gaiety and courage. No, one could say nothing of the sort. Indeed, conversation for a moment flagged. The human frame being what it is, heart, body, and brain, all mixed together and not contained in separate compartments, as they will be, no doubt, in another million years, a good dinner is of great importance to good talk. One cannot think well, love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. The lamp in the spine does not light on beef and prunes. We are all probably going to heaven, and Van Dyke is, we hope, to meet us round the next corner. That is the dubious and qualifying state of mind that beef and prunes at the end of the day's work breed between them. Happily, my friend who taught science had a cupboard where there was a squat bottle and little glasses, but there should have been sole and partridge to begin with so that we were able to draw up the fire and repair some of the damages of the day's living. In a minute or so, we were simply freely in and out among all those objects of curiosity and interest which form in the mind in the absence of a particular person and are naturally to be discussed on coming together again. How somebody has married, another has not. One thinks of this, another that. One has improved out of all knowledge, the other most amazingly gone to the bad. With all those speculations upon human nature and the character of the amazing world that we live in, which spring naturally from such, springs naturally from such beginnings. While these things were being said, however, I became shamefacedly aware of a current setting in of its own accord and carrying everything forward to an end of its own. One might be talking of Spain or Portugal, of book or racehorse, but the real interest of whatever was said was none of those things, but a scene of masons on a high roof some five centuries ago. Kings and nobles bought treasure in huge sacks and poured it under the earth. This scene was forever coming alive in my mind and placing itself by another of lean cows and a muddy market and withered greens and stringy hearts of old men. These two pictures, disjointed and disconnected and nonsensical as they were, were forever coming together and combating each other and had me entirely at their mercy. The best course, unless the whole talk was to be distorted, was to expose what was in my mind to the air, when with good luck it would fade and crumble like the head of the dead king when they opened the coffin at Windsor. Briefly then, I told Miss Satan about the, mans the Masons who had been all those years on the roof of the chapel and about the kings and queens and nobles bearing sacks of gold and silver on their shoulders, which they shoveled into the earth, and then how the great financial magnates of our own time came and laid checks and bonds, I suppose, where the others had laid ingots and rough lumps of gold. All that lies beneath the colleges down there, I said, but this college where we are now sitting, what lies beneath its gallant red brick and the wild unkempt grasses of the garden, what force is behind the plain china off which we dined, and here it popped out of my mouth before I could stop it, the beef, the custard, and the prunes, 
Well, said Mary Seaton, about the year 1860, oh, but you know the story, she said, bored, I suppose, by the recital. And she told me, rooms were hired, committees met, envelopes were addressed, circulars were drawn up, meetings were held, letters were read out, so-and-so has promised so much, on the contrary, someone else won't give us a penny. The Saturday Review has been very rude. How can we raise a fund to pay for offices? Shall we hold a bazaar? Can't we find a pretty girl to sit in the front row? Let us look up what John Stuart Mill said on the subject. Can anyone persuade some editor of some magazine to print a letter? Can we get a lady to sign it? Are all the ladies out of town? That was the way it was done, presumably 60 years ago, and it, was, and it was a prodigious effort, and a great deal of time was spent on it, and it was only after a long struggle and with the utmost difficulty that they got 30,000 pounds together. So obviously we cannot have wine and partridges and servants carrying tin dishes on their heads, she said. We cannot have sofas in separate rooms. The amenities, she said, quoting from some book or another. We'll have to wait. At the thought of all those women working year after year and finding it hard to get 2,000 pounds together, and as much as they could do to get 30,000 pounds, we burst out in scorn at the reprehensible poverty of our sex. What had our mothers been doing then that they had no wealth to leave us? Powdering their noses? Looking in at shop windows, flaunting in the sun at Monte Carlo, there were some photographs on the mantelpiece. Mary's mother, if that was her picture, may have been a wastrel in her spare time. She had 13 children by a minister of the church. But if so, so her gay and dissipated life had left too few traces of its pleasures on her face. She was a homely body, an old lady in a plaid shawl, which was fastened by a large cameo, and she sat in a basket chair, encouraging a spaniel to look at the camera. With the amused yet strained expression of one who is sure that the dog will move directly, the bulb is pressed. Now, if she had gone into business, had become a manufacturer of artificial silk or a magnate on the stock exchange, if she had left two or three hundred thousand pounds to Fernham, we could have been sitting at our ease tonight, and the subject of our talk might have been archaeology, botany, anthropology, physics, the nature of the atom, mathematics, astronomy, relativity, geography. If only Mrs. Seaton and her mother and her mother before her had learnt the great art of making money and had left their money, like their fathers and their grandfathers before them, to found fellowships and lectureships and prizes and scholarships appropriated to the use of their own sex, we might have dined very tolerably up here alone, off a bird and a bottle of wine. We might have looked forward without undue confidence to a pleasant and honorable lifetime spent in the shelter of one of the liberally endowed professions. We might have been exploring or writing, mooning about the venerable places of the earth, sitting contemplative on the steps of the Parthenon, or going at ten to an office and coming home comfortably at half past four to write a little poetry. Only if Mrs. Seaton and her 
had gone into business at the age of 15, there would have been, that was the snag in the argument. No, Mary. What, I asked, did Mary think of that? There between the curtains was the October night, calm and lovely, with a star or two caught in the yellowing trees. Was she ready to resign her share of it and her memories, for they had been a happy family, though a large one, of games and quarrels up in Scotland, which she is never tired of praising for the fineness of its air and the quality of its cakes, in order that Fernham might have been endowed with 50,000 pounds or so by a stroke of the pen. For to endow a college would necessitate the suppression of families altogether. Making a fortune and bearing 13 children, no human being could stand it. Consider the facts, we said. First, there are nine months before the baby is born, then the baby is born, then there are three or four months spent in feeding the baby. After the baby is fed, there are certainly five years spent playing with the baby. You cannot, it seems, let children run about the streets. People who have seen them running wild in Russia say that the sight is not a pleasant one. People say, too, that human nature takes its shape in the years between one and five. If Mrs. Seaton, I said, had been making money, what sort of memories would you have had of games and quarrels? What would you have known of Scotland and its fine air and cakes and all the rest of it? But it is useless to ask these questions because you would never have come into existence at all. Moreover, it is equally useless to ask what might have happened if Mrs. Seaton and her mother, and her mother before her, had amassed great wealth and laid it under the foundations of college and library, because in the first place, to earn money was impossible for them. And in the second, had it been possible, the law denied them the right to possess what money they earned. It is only for the last 48 years that Mrs. Seaton has had a penny of her own. For all the centuries before that, it would have been her husband's property, a thought which, perhaps, may have had its share in keeping Mrs. Seaton and her mothers off the stock exchange. Every penny I earn, they may have said, will be taken from me and disposed of according to my husband's wisdom. Perhaps to found a scholarship or to endow a fellowship in Balliol or King's so that to earn money, even if I could earn money, is not a matter that interests me very greatly. I had better leave it to my husband. At any rate, whether or not the blame rested on the old lady who was looking at the spaniel, there could be no doubt that for some reason or other our mothers had mismanaged their affairs very gravely. Not a penny could be spared for amenities, for partridges and wine, beetles and turf, books and cigars, libraries and leisure. To raise bare walls out of the bare earth was the utmost they could do. So we talked standing at the window and looking as so many thousands look every night down on the domes and towers of the famous city beneath us. It was very beautiful, very mysterious in the autumn moonlight. The old stone looked very white and venerable. One thought of all the books that were assembled down there, of the pictures of old prelates and worthies hanging in the paneled rooms, of the painted windows that would be throwing strange globes and crescents on the pavement, of the tablets and memorials and inscriptions, of the fountains and the grass, 
of the quiet rooms looking across the quiet quadrangles. And pardon me the thought, I thought too, of the admirable smoke and drink and the deep armchairs and the pleasant carpets, of the urbanity, the geniality, the dignity, which are the offspring of luxury and privacy and space. Certainly our mothers had not provided us with anything comparable to all this. Our mothers who found it difficult to scrape together 30,000 pounds. Our mothers who bore 13 children to ministers of religion at St. Andrews. So I went back to my inn and as I walked through the dark streets, I pondered this and that as one does at the end of the day's work. I pondered why it was that Mrs. Seaton had no money to leave us and what effect poverty has on the mind and what effect wealth has on the mind. And I thought of the queer old gentlemen I had seen that morning with tufts of fur upon their shoulders. And I remembered how if one whistled, one of them ran. And I thought of the organ booming in the chapel and of the shut doors of the library. And I thought of how unpleasant it is to be locked out. And I thought of how it is worse perhaps to be locked in. And thinking of the safety and prosperity of the one sex and the poverty and insecurity of the other and of the effect of tradition and of the lack of tradition upon the mind of a writer. I thought at last that it was a time to roll up the crumpled skin of the day with its arguments and its impressions and its anger and its laughter and cast it into the hedge. A thousand stars were flashing across the blue wastes of the sky. One seemed alone with an inscrutable society. All human beings were laid asleep, prone, horizontal, dumb. Nobody seemed stirring in the streets of Oxbridge. Even the door of the hotel sprang open at the touch of an invisible hand. Not a boots was sitting up to light me to bed. It was so late. Chapter two. The scene, if I may ask you to follow me, was now changed. The leaves were still falling, but in London now, not Oxbridge, and I must ask and I must ask you to imagine a room like many thousands, with a window looking across people's hats and vans and motor cars to other windows, and on the table inside the room a blank sheet of paper on which was written in large letters, women and fiction, but no more. The inevitable sequel to lunching and dining at Oxbridge seemed unfortunately to be a visit to the British Museum. One must strain off what was personal and accidental in all these impressions and so reach the pure fluid, the essential oil of truth. For that visit to Oxbridge and the luncheon and the dinner had started a swarm of questions. Why did men drink wine and women water? Why was one sex so prosperous and the other so poor? What effect has poverty on fiction? What conditions are necessary for the creation of works of art? A thousand questions at once suggested themselves. But one needed answers, not questions and an answer was only to be had by consulting the learning and the unprejudiced who have removed themselves above the strife of tongue and the confusion of body and issued the results of their reasoning and research 
in books which are to be found in the British Museum. If truth is not to be found on the shelves of the British Museum, where, I asked myself, picking up a notebook and a pencil, is truth. Thus provided the confident and inquiring I set out in the pursuit of truth. The day, though not actually wet, was dismal, and the streets in the neighborhood of the museum were full of open coal holes down which sacks were showering. Four-wheeled cabs were drawing up and depositing on the pavement corded boxes containing presumably the entire wardrobe of some Swiss or Italian family seeking fortune or refuge or some other desirable commodity which is to be found in the boarding houses of Bloomsbury in the winter. The usual hoarse-voiced men prated the streets with plants on barrows. Some shouted, others sang, London was like a workshop. London was like a machine. We were all being shot backwards and forwards on this plain foundation to make some pattern. The British Museum was another department of the factory. The swing doors swung open and there one stood under the vast dome as if one were a thought in the huge bald forehead which is so splendidly encircled by a band of famous names. One went to the counter. One took a slip of paper. One opened a volume of the catalog and there are five elliptical dots. The five dots here indicate five separate minutes of stupefaction, wonder and bewilderment. Have you any notion how many books are written about women in the course of one year? Have you any notion how many are written by men? Are you aware that you are perhaps the most discussed animal in the universe? Wolf is talking to an audience of women. Here, I had come with a notebook and a pencil proposing to spend a morning reading, supposing that at the end of the morning, I should have transferred the truth to my notebook. But I should need to be a herd of elephants, I thought, and a wilderness of spiders desperately referencing to the animals that are reputed longest lived and most multitudinously eyed to cope with all of this. I should need claws of steel and beak of brass even to penetrate the husk. How shall I ever find the grains of truth embedded in all this mass of paper, I asked myself, and in despair began running my eye up and down the long list of titles. Even the names of the books gave me food for thought. Sex and its nature might well attract doctors and biologists, but what was surprising and difficult of explanation was the fact that sex, woman, that is to say, also attracts agreeable essayists, light-fingered novelists, young men who have taken the MA degree, men who have taken no degree, men who have no apparent qualification save that they are not women. Some of these books were, on the face of it, frivolous and facetious, but many, on the other hand, were serious and prophetic, moral and oratory. Merely to read the titles suggested innumerable schoolmasters, innumerable clergymen mounting their platforms and pulpits and holding forth with a loquacity which far, far exceeded the hour usually allotted to such discourse on this one subject. It was a most strange phenomenon and apparently 
here I consulted the letter M, one confined to the male sex. Women do not write books about men, a fact I could not help welcoming with relief. For if I had first to read all that men have written about women, then all that women have written about men, the aloe that flowers once in a hundred years would flower twice before I could set pen to paper. So making a perfectly arbitrary choice of a dozen volumes or so, I sent my slips of paper to lie in the wire tray and waited in my stall among the other seekers for the essential oil of truth. What could be the reason then of this curious disparity, I wondered, drawing cartwheels on the slips of paper provided by the British taxpayer for other purposes. Why are women, judging from this catalog, so much more interesting to men than men are to women? A very curious fact, it seemed, and my mind wandered to picture the lives of men who spend their time in writing books about women. Whether they were old or young, married or unmarried, red-nosed or humpbacked, anyhow, it was flattering vaguely to feel oneself the object of such attention, provided that it was not entirely bestowed by the crippled and the infirm. So I pondered until all such frivolous thoughts were ended by an avalanche of books sliding down onto the desk in front of me. Now the trouble began. The student who has been trained in research at Oxbridge has no doubt some method of shepherding his question past all distractions till it runs into an answer as a sheep runs into its pen. The student by my side, for instance, who was copying assiduously from a scientific manual was, I felt sure, extracting pure nuggets of the essential ore every 10 minutes or so. His little grunts of satisfaction indicated so much. But if, unfortunately, one has had no training in a university, the question, far from being shepherded to its pen, flies like a frightened flock, hither and thither, helter-skelter, pursued by a whole pack of hounds. Professors, schoolmasters, sociologists, clergymen, novelists, essayists, journalists, men who had no qualification save that they were not women, chased my simple and single question. Why are women poor? Until it became 50 questions. Until the 50 questions leapt frantically into midstream and were carried away. Every page in my notebook was scribbled over with notes. To show the state of mind I was in, I will read you a few of them, explaining that the page was headed quite simply, Women and Poverty, in block letters, but what followed was something like this. Conditions in the Middle Ages of, habits in the Fiji Islands of, worshipped as goddesses by, weaker in moral sense than, idealism of, greater conscientiousness of, South Sea Islanders' age of puberty among, attractiveness of, offered as sacrifice to, small size of brain of, profounder subconsciousness of, less hair on the body of, mental, moral, and physical inferiority of, love of children of, greater length of life of, weaker muscles of, strength of affections of, vanity of, higher education of, 
Shakespeare's opinion of Lord Burdekin's opinion of Dean Inge's opinion of La Bruyere's opinion of Dr. Johnson's opinion of Mr. Oscar Browning's opinion of and so on. Here I drew a breath and added indeed in the margin. Why does Samuel Butler say wise men never say what they think of women? Wise men never say anything else, apparently. But I continued leaning back in my chair and looking at the vast dome in which I was single, but by now somewhat harassed thought. What is so unfortunate is that wise men never think the same things about women. Here's Pope. Most women have no character at all. And here is La Bruyere. Women are extreme. Women are better or worse than men. It was written in French, so I just translated it on the fly. A direct contradiction by keen observers who were contemporary. Are they capable of education or incapable? Napoleon thought them incapable. Dr. Johnson thought the opposite. Have they souls or have they not souls? Some savages say they have none. Others, on the contrary, maintain that women are half divine and worship them on that account. Some sages hold that they are shallower in the brain, others that they are deeper in the consciousness. Both honored them, Mussolini despises them. Wherever one looked, men thought about women and thought differently. It was impossible to make head or tail of it, I decided, glancing with envy at the reader next door who was making the neatest abstract, headed often with an A or a B or a C, while my own notebook rioted with the wildest scribble of contradictory jottings. It was distressing. It was bewildering. It was humiliating. Truth had run through my fingers. Every drop had escaped. I could not possibly go home, I reflected, and add as a serious contribution to the study of women and fiction that women have less hair on their bodies than men or that the age of puberty among the South Sea Islanders is, is, Islanders is nine, or is it 90? Even the handwriting had become in its distraction indecipherable. It was disgraceful to have nothing more weighty or respectable to show after a whole morning's work. And if I could not grasp the truth about Women, in the past, why bother about women in the future? It seemed pure waste of time to consult all those gentlemen who specialize in women and her effect on whatever it may be, politics, children, wages, morality, numerous and learned as they are. One might as well leave their books unopened. But while I pondered, I had unconsciously in my listlessness, in my desperation, been drawing a picture where I should, like my neighbor, have been writing a conclusion. I had been drawing a face, a figure. It was the face and the figure of Professor Von Eck, engaged in writing his monumental work entitled The Mental, Moral, and Physical Inferiority of the Female Sex. He was not in my picture a man attractive to women. He was heavily built. He had a great jowl to balance that. He had very small eyes. He was very red in the face. 
His expression suggested that he was laboring under some emotion that made him jab his pen on the paper as if he were killing some noxious insect as he wrote. But even when he had killed it, that did not satisfy him. He must go on killing it, and even so, some cause for anger and irritation remained. Could it be his wife, I asked, looking at my picture? Was she in love with a cavalry officer? Was the cavalry officer slim and elegant and dressed in astrachan? Had he been laughed at to adopt the Freudian theory in his cradle by a pretty girl? For even in the cradle, the professor, I thought, could not have been an attractive child. Whatever the reason, the professor was made to look very angry and very ugly in my sketch. As he wrote his great book upon the mental, moral, and physical inferiority of women. Drawing pictures was an idle way of finishing an unprofitable morning's work. Yet it is in our idleness, in our dreams, that the submerged truth sometimes comes to the top. A very elementary exercise in psychology, not to be dignified by the name of psychoanalysis, showed me on looking at my notebook that the sketch of the angry professor had been made in anger. Anger had snatched my pencil while I dreamt. But what was anger doing there? Interest, confusion, amusement, boredom, all these emotions I could trace and name as they succeeded each other throughout the morning. Had anger, the black snake, been lurking among them? Yes, said the sketch, anger had. It referred me unmistakably to the one book, the one phrase which had roused the demon. It was the professor's statement about the mental, moral, and physical inferiority of women. My heart had leapt, my cheeks had burnt, I had flushed with anger. There was nothing specially remarkable, however foolish in that. One does not like to be told that one is naturally the inferior, the inferior of a little man. I looked at the student next to me who breathes hard, wears a ready-made tie and has not shaved this fortnight. One has certain foolish vanities. It is only human nature, I reflected and began drawing cartwheels and circles over the angry professor's face till he looked like a burning bush or a flaming comet. Anyhow, an apparition without human semblance or significance. The professor was nothing now, but a bush burning on the top of Hampstead Heath. Soon my own anger was explained and done with, but curiosity remained. How explain the anger of the professors? Why were they angry? For when it came to analyzing the impression left by these books, there was always an element of heat. This heat took many forms. It showed itself in satire, in sentiment, in curiosity, in reprobation, but there was another element which was often present and I could not immediately identify it. Anger, I called it. But it was anger that had gone underground and mixed itself with all kinds of other emotions. To judge from its odd effects, it was anger disguised and complex, not anger simple and open. Whatever the reason, all these books, I thought, surveying the pile on the desk, are worthless for my purposes. They were worthless scientifically, that is to say, though humanly they were full of instruction, interest, boredom, and very queer facts about the habits of Fiji Islanders. 
They had been written in the red light of emotion and not in the white light of truth. Therefore, they must be returned to the central desk and restored each to his own cell in the enormous honeycomb. All that I had retrieved from that morning's work had been the one fact of anger. The professors, I lumped them together thus, were angry. But why, I asked myself, having returned the books, why, I repeated, standing under the colonnade among the pigeons and the prehistoric canoes, why are they angry? And asking myself this question, I strolled off to find a place for luncheon. What is the real nature of what I call for the moment their, the, the moment their anger? I asked. Here was a puzzle that would last all the time that it takes to be served with food in a small restaurant somewhere near the British Museum. Some previous luncher had left the lunch edition of the evening paper on a chair and waiting to be served, I began idly reading the headlines. A ribbon of very large letters ran across the page. Somebody had made a big score in South Africa. Lesser ribbons announced that Sir Austin Chamberlain was at Geneva. A meat ax with human hair on it had been found in a cellar. Mr. Justice commented in divorce courts upon the shamelessness of women. Sprinkled about the paper were other pieces of news. A film actress had been lowered from a peak in California and hung suspended in midair. The weather was going to be foggy. The most transient visitor to this planet, I thought, who picked up this paper could not fail to be aware, even from this scattered testimony, that England is under the rule of the patriarchy. Nobody in their senses could fail to detect the dominance of the professor. His was the power and the money and the influence. He was the proprietor of the paper and its editor and sub-editor. He was the foreign secretary and the judge. He was the cricketer. He owned the racehorses and the yachts. He was the director of the company that pays 200% to its shareholders. He left millions to charities and colleges that were ruled by himself. He suspended the film actress in midair. He will decide if the hair on the meat axe is human. He it is who will acquit or convict the murderer and hang him or let him go free. With the exception of the fog, he seemed to control everything. Yet he was angry. I knew that he was angry by this token. When I read what he wrote about women, I thought not of what he was saying, but of himself. When an arguer argues dispassionately, he thinks only of the argument, and the reader cannot help thinking of the argument, too. If he had written dispassionately about women, had used indisputable proofs to establish his argument, and had shown no trace of wishing that the result should be one thing rather than another, one would not have been angry either. One would have accepted the fact as one accepts the fact that a pea is green or a canary yellow. So be it, I should have said. But I had been angry because he was angry. Yet it seemed absurd, I thought, turning over the evening paper, that a man with all this power should be angry. Or is anger, I wondered, somehow the familiar attendant sprite on power? Rich people, for example, are often angry because they suspect that the poor want to seize their wealth. 
the professors or patriarchs, as it might be more accurate to call them, might be angry for that reason partly, but partly for one that lies a little less obviously on the surface. Possibly they were not angry at all. Often, indeed, they were admiring, devoted, exemplary in the relations of private life. Possibly when the professor insisted a little too emphatically upon the inferiority of women, he was concerned not with their inferiority, but with his own superiority. That was what he was protecting rather hot-headedly and with too much emphasis. Because it was a jewel to him of the rarest price. Life for both sexes, and I looked at them shouldering their way along the pavement, is arduous, difficult, a perpetual struggle. It calls for gigantic courage and strength. More than anything, perhaps, creatures of illusion as we are, it calls for confidence in oneself. Without self-confidence, we are as babes in the cradle. And how can we generate this imponderable quality, which is yet so invaluable, most quickly? By thinking that other people are inferior to oneself. By feeling that one has some innate superiority. It may be wealth or rank, a straight nose, or the portrait of a grandfather by Romney. For there is no end to the pathetic devices of the human imagination over the people. Hence, the enormous importance to a patriarch who has to conquer, who has to rule, of feeling that great numbers of people, half the human race indeed, are by nature inferior to himself. It must indeed be one of the chief sources of his power, but let me turn the light of this observation on to real life, I thought. Does it help to explain some of those psychological puzzles that one notes in the margin of daily life? Does it explain my astonishment the other day when the most humane, most modest of men, taking up some book by Rebecca West and reading a passage in it, exclaimed, the errant feminist. She says that men are snobs. The exclamation to me so surprising for why was Miss West an errant feminist for making a possibly true if uncomplimentary statement about the other sex was not merely the cry of wounded vanity. It was a protest against some infringement of his power to believe in himself. Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. Without that power, probably the earth would still be swamp and jungle. The glories of all our wars would be unknown. We should still be scratching the outlines of deer on the remains of mutton bones and bartering flints for sheepskins or whatever simple ornament took our unsophisticated taste. Supermen and fingers of destiny would never have existed. The Tsar and the Kaiser would never have worn their crowns or lost them. Whatever may be their use in civilized societies, mirrors are essential to all violent and heroic action. That is why Napoleon and Mussolini both insist so emphatically upon the inferiority of women, where if they were not inferior, they would cease to enlarge. That serves to explain in part the necessity that women so often are to men, and it serves to explain how restless they are under her criticism, how impossible it is for her to say to them, this book is bad, this picture is feeble, 
or whatever it may be, without giving far more pain and arousing far more anger than a man would do who gave the same criticism. For if she begins to tell the truth, the figure in the looking glass shrinks, his fitness for life is diminished. How is he to go on giving judgment, civilizing natives, making laws, writing books, dressing up, and speechifying at banquets, unless he can see himself at breakfast and at dinner at least twice the size he really is? So I reflected, crumbling my bread and stirring my coffee, and now and again looking at the people in the street, the looking glass vision is of supreme importance because it charges the vitality, it stimulates the nervous system. Take it away and man may die. Like the drug fiend deprived of his cocaine. Under the spell of that illusion, I thought, looking out of the window, half the people on the pavement are striding to work. They put on their hats and coats in the morning under its agreeable rays. They start the day confident, braced, believing themselves desired at Miss Smith's tea party. They say to themselves as they go into the room, I am the superior of half the people here, and it is thus that they speak with that self-confidence, that self-assurance, which have had such profound consequences in public life and led to such curious notes in the margin of the private mind. But these contributions to the dangerous and fascinating subject of the psychology of the other sex, it is one I hope that you will investigate when you have 500 a year of your own, were interrupted by the necessity of paying the bill. It came to five shillings and nine pence. I gave the waiter a 10 shilling note and he went to bring me change. There was another 10 shilling note in my purse. I noticed it because it is a fact that still takes my breath away the power of my purse to breed 10 shilling notes automatically. I open it and there they are. Society gives me chicken and coffee, bed and lodging in return for a certain number of pieces of paper which were left me by an aunt for no other reason than that I share her name. My aunt, Mary Beaton, I must tell you, died by a fall from her horse when she was riding out to take the air in Bombay. The news of my legacy reached me one night about the same time that the act was passed that gave votes to women. A solicitor's letter fell into the post box, and when I opened it, I found that she had left me 500 pounds a year forever. Of the two, the vote and the money, the money I own, seemed infinitely more important. Before that, I had made my living by caging odd jobs from newspapers by reporting a donkey show here or a wedding there. I had earned a few pounds by addressing envelopes, reading to old ladies, making artificial flowers, teaching the alphabet to small children in a kindergarten. Such were the chief occupations that were open to women before 1918. I need not, I am afraid, describe in any detail the hardness of the work, for you know perhaps women who have done it, nor the difficulty of living on the money when it was earned, for you may have tried. But what still remains with me, as a worse infliction than either, was the poison of fear and bitterness which those days bred in me. To begin with, always to be doing work that one did not wish to do, and to do it like a slave, flattering and fawning, not always necessarily, perhaps, but it seemed necessary, and the stakes were too great to run risks, and then the thought of that one gift which it was death to hide, 
a small one, but dear to the possessor, perishing, and with it myself, my soul, all this became like a rust, eating away the bloom of the spring, destroying the tree at its heart. However, as I say, my aunt died, and whenever I change a ten-shilling note, a little of that rust and corrosion is rubbed off. Fear and bitterness go. Indeed, I thought, slipping the silver into my purse, it is remarkable remembering the bitterness of those days. What a change of temper a fixed income will bring about. No force in the world can take from me my 500 pounds. Food, house, and clothing are mine forever. Therefore, not merely do effort and labor cease, but also hatred and bitterness. I need not hate any man, he cannot hurt me. I need not flatter any man, he has nothing to give me. So imperceptibly, I found myself adopting a new attitude towards the other half of the human race. It was absurd to blame any class or any sex as a whole. Great bodies of people are never responsible for what they do. They are driven by instincts which are not within their control. They too, the patriarchs, the professors, had endless difficulties, terrible drawbacks to contend with. Their education had been in some ways as faulty as my own. It had bred in them defects as great. True, they had money and power, but only at the cost of harboring in their breasts an eagle, a vulture, forever tearing the liver out and plucking at the lungs. The instinct, instinct for possession, the rage for acquisition, which drives them to desire other people's fields and goods perpetually, to make frontiers and flags, battleships and poison gas, to offer up their own lives and their children's lives, walk through the Admiralty Arch, I had reached that monument, or any other avenue given up to trophies and cannon, and reflect upon the kind of glory celebrated there. Or watch in the spring sunshine the stockbroker and the great barrister going indoors to make money and more money and more money when it is a fact that 500 pounds a year will keep one alive in the sunshine. There are unpleasant instincts to harbor, I reflected. They are bred of the conditions of life, of the lack of civilization, I thought, looking at the statue of the Duke of Cambridge, and in particular at the feathers in his cocked hat with a fixity that they have scarcely ever received before. And as I realized these drawbacks by degrees, fear and bitterness modified themselves into pity and toleration, and then in a year or two, pity and toleration went, and the greatest release of all came which is freedom to think of things in themselves. That building, for example, do I like it or not? Is that picture beautiful or not? Is that, in my opinion, a good book or a bad? Indeed, my aunt's legacy unveiled the sky to me and substituted for the large and imposing figure of a gentleman, which Milton recommended for my perpetual adoration, a view of the open sky. So thinking, so speculating, I found my way back to my house by the river. Lamps were being lit, and an indescribable change had come over London since the morning hour. It was as if the great machine, after laboring all day, had made with our help a few yards of something very exciting and very beautiful. A fiery fabric flashing with red eyes, a tawny monster roaring with hot breath. Even the wind seemed flung like a flag as it lashed the houses 
and rattled the hoardings. In my little street, however, domesticity prevailed. The house painter was descending his ladder, the nursemaid was wheeling the perambulator carefully in and out back to nursery tea. The coal heaver was folding his empty sacks on top of each other. The woman who keeps the green grocer's shop was adding up the day's takings with her hands in red mittens. But so engrossed was I with the problem you have laid upon my shoulders that I could not see even these usual sights without referring them to one center. I thought, how much harder it is now than it must have been even a century ago to say which of these employments is the higher, the more necessary. Is it better to be the coal heaver or a nursemaid? Is the charwoman who has brought up eight children of less value to the world than the barrister who has made a hundred thousand pounds? It is useless to ask such questions for nobody can answer them. Not only do the comparative values of charwomen and lawyers rise and fall from decade to decade, but we have no rods with which to measure them, even as they are at the moment. I had been foolish to ask my professor to furnish me with indisputable proofs of this or that in his argument about women. Even if one could state the value of any one gift at the moment, those values will change. In a century's time, very possibly, they will have changed completely. Moreover, in a hundred years, I thought, reaching my own doorstep, women will have ceased to be the protected sex. Logically, they will take part in all the activities and exertions that were once denied them. The nursemaid will heave coal. The shopwoman will drive an engine. All assumptions founded on the facts observed when women were the protected sex will have disappeared, as, for example, here a squad of soldiers marched down the street, that women and clergymen and gardeners live longer than other people. Remove that protection, expose them to the same exertions and activities, make them soldiers and sailors and engine drivers and dock laborers, and will not women die off so much younger, so much quicker than men that, will one, that one will say, I saw a woman today, as one used to say, I saw an aeroplane. Anything may happen when womanhood has ceased to be a protected occupation, I thought, opening the door. But what bearing has all this upon the subject of my paper, Women and Fiction, I asked, going indoors.